Welcome, welcome, one and all, to Books and Beer Review, a drinking podcast with a book reading problem. This is our booze-soaked twist on the classic book club, where we, your hosts, take it in turn to report on a recently read piece of literature. We do the legwork so you don't have to. But before we get to any of that, we must review the brew, bicker about the liquor, and wine, wine about the wine. So please sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another episode. My name is Kevin, and with me as always is my co-host and dearest of dear friends, Craig and Patrick. <laughs> Craig, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're drinking tonight? So I just had to drink this because one of the episodes you guys were giving me shit about this. Uh, for a New Year's party, I had you guys try some of this Sambuca. It's more like semen buka. <laughs> So, it's more uh, like suck, for those of you that don't know, uh, Zambuca, it <laughs> says uh, Romania, so I'm assuming it's from Romania. Um, but it's a liqueur, um, it tastes like black licorice, it has the consistency uh, of so, Purell. Yeah, so, I am not worst. a that uh, is it, it is, it looks <laughs> and viscosity of Purell, yeah, it looks like Purell. Greg, stop drinking hand sanitizer. It's bad for you. This is not how a hand sanitizer. sanitizer <laughs> that's that's definitely how you know you've got that a drinking problem. That could actually probably alternate as a hand sanitizer. Yeah, you have to probably be sticky, I mean, I though. think it's only 35% oh. alcohol, so it, it wouldn't be a very good... Oh, no, sorry, 42% alcohol, so it would not be a very good hand sanitizer. Your hands would be all sticky afterwards from all the, I'm assuming, yeah. sugar, but also the semen that's in it. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably great for people who like licorice, which is not me. And semen. Well, I don't like black licorice, but I like But this. you do love semen. How do you not like black licorice, but you like that? Because it's the exact same thing. I don't, I can't. No, it's not the exact same thing. That is the devil in a bottle. Well, it's is. liquid licorice. That was the grossest thing. Or maybe thing. it's made with star anise, which is The grossest very thing similar. you ever gave me. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, have well, you had fighting cock before? I had fighting cock. I don't remember it. Have you had the Canadian whiskey <laughs> I have downstairs? That's pretty terrible, Probably. too. Probably. Well, after the show. <laughs> Uh, All right, Kevin, why don't you tell us about what you're drinking? Right? Sure. I'm drinking is also terrible. Um, it's <laughs> from a brewery that I actually quite like named Deschutes. Uh, good good place where they had a... Deschutes? Yeah, Deschutes. That's, re- re- that's really Colorado close to like Deschutes. Or something. I, for the longest time, I called it Deutsches because I'm an idiot. Uh, Oregon, yes. So they're out of Oregon. And uh, I usually like their stuff, but this is an obsidian mm. stout. And I'm not a stout guy. I'm trying to broaden my horizons, but this yeah. tastes like someone... Took some ash out of a fire pit and mixed it with water. My favorite by them is the Black Butte Porter, which is fantastic beer. I think I've got some of that at home, and That's I think I remember it's better. I, I'm coming around to stouts ever since they taught me at the St. James Gate how to drink Guinness. Oh, I didn't know that there was a specific way. There's, yeah, so what you're supposed to do is take a swig. As you put it in your mouth. You take a swig. And he <laughs> was doing it a whole different revolutionary was, type of way that nose. is not don't, proper don't do for a jackass three way where you take it up the ass yeah that's no. what i was implying by the, i wanted to not offend our this episode's our, our already our gotten very vulgar and not just because i said semen at least seven times within the first minute so you, you don't like it you okay like it tastes like ash that's well, mixed with water. hold on let me get let me give it the old saint james gate try here hold on a second Okay, while he's doing that, Seamus, why don't you... <laughs> no, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm, I'm tasting hints of ass. <laughs> wow. So I am drinking Boulevard Brewing Company, another Missouri beer, uh, brewery, yes. because apparently I'm very uh, loyal to the state. You're, yes, you're nothing if not a state loyalist, yeah. uh, even though you live don't in live Illinois. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so this is from Kansas City, Missouri. It is an oatmeal... He's Missouri at heart. No. No, Missouri is kind of terrible as well. Anyway, this is an oatmeal Ouch. raisin cookie. It's a brown ale with natural flavors. And it, it does taste like an oatmeal raisin cookie, especially the raisin part. Really? Uh, they must have put a lot of raisins in this when they're... Uh, uh, it's a too good for you, it. you uh, Missouri it is, hater. Hand that back. It is 5.5% alcohol by volume. I, I, you're the only one that does that. What is it? It's 5.5 horsepower as I'm... Accustomed to say, I'm really jealous that that's your thing because I love you. That can't expression. you can't take that? Defi- My, mine's about six and a half horsepower, if you will. <laughs> Craig, yours is probably got the most horsepower. But yeah, I it actually. Does 42. I mean, I'm not a huge fan. Forty two horses. 
not a huge fan of sweet things, but this is pretty good. Right. So that's the booze. How about the books? You guys want to hear about the books? Yes. Oh, we're and, talking about books. books. And by or, books, I mean book because I only read one. <laughs> Do tell. What, what book have you read? I read. Pop? What? Is it Half on Pop? I did read that, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. I read that to my daughter the other night. Uh, but no, this is, and I forget it. It's James Carlin, right? I, I don't know what book the you're podcast. talking about. Okay, you read Hold on. You didn't even tell him the oh, title of the book no. you're reading. Not James Carlin. It's uh, Dan Carlin. Yes. It's Dan Carlin's. James the, Cameron. James, James Cameron's Avatar colon the end. No. It's the Carlin. novelization of Avatar by James Cameron. <laughs> you may now turn off the podcast. Excuse me. It's called Dan Carlin. It's, the author is Dan Carlin, and it is called The End is Always Near. Um, that and I think sounds the, like a really happy book. It is. The subtitle is um, from nuclear near or from the Bronze Age uh, collapse to near nuclear. Does misses. he read his own book? He does. So just to let you know, he does a podcast, Hardcore yeah. History, and he is a fantastic orator. Yeah, and that, oh, that's so actually this, this is a nonfiction book. Yes, okay. I, I want to say that from this is nonfiction, so this is going to be a little different from what we've He's done. He's not in the past. a historian, and he tells you a lot of times. He's a journalist, I think, yeah. by trade. Um, yeah. But I don't know how long you can not report on the news and still call yourself a journalist. <laughs> At a certain point, you're a podcaster now. Uh, but no, he's not a historian by trade. And uh, because this is sort of nonfiction, we're going to do this a little bit differently. Um, I'm not, this is not really a narrative to this. It's really going to be a discussion of a lot of principles and ideas that he brings up in the book with the historical settings that they arise from. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, the whole point of this book is you can almost boil it down to an, uh, a saying that I actually am very fond of using. And that saying is that every generation was convinced that it was going to be the last one. And the only thing they all have in common is that they were all wrong. Like everyone's a doomsday cult. Yes. Now, the book, uh, he sort of labors uh, to make the point that, it's almost the counterpoint to that, that even though they were all wrong, some of them were really close to being right. Uh, and, you know, especially when we get some of the nuclear near misses. But he starts off basically in a historical order with the Bronze Age collapse. And uh, if you don't know anything about this historical period, this was way, way, way back in ancient times. This is like 6,000 BC onwards to like 2000. I guess maybe. this is when like writing first took off yes, as a thing. That's exactly. And that's why we know so little about it is because writing was like cutting edge technology during this time. And it wasn't used for really anything other than record keeping. So we've got a whole and beer recipes. Yeah, we've got a lot. Well, yeah, actually, yeah. we got a lot of documentation about how, like but last think, year's harvest. I think I've read somewhere that like the very first, like, the oldest thing they found written down is like a beer recipe or something like that. <laughs> of course, I believe it. there's a documentary on Netflix I watched once called "How Beer Saved the World." Yeah, and there's a whole thing about how like one of the reasons it's safer humanity, to drink than water. Yeah, well, and one of the reasons civilization may even be a thing is not is so people could more effectively brew beer because you have to stop and grow the you can't just collect wild barley you got to grow it to make more beer <laughs> anyway not what the book is about it should Bron- be. <clears throat> this, we're let's talking change the book we're yeah, talking let's, like let's change what book you're talking about today this Kevin. is sort of like ancient egypt this is uh assyria this is babylon this is before the greeks were greek this is like instead of the greeks you have the minoans and the you know the mycenaeans and stuff like that and what's really interesting about this period is because the records are so spotty, we don't exactly know what precipitated this collapse, but we do know it happened. Like, and it would have been world shattering. He, he he sort of phrases it. It would have been like if the United States, like tomorrow, just collapsed in on itself, like within ten years. He says it's about a ten year period that the greatest powers in the world, the known world, and when I say the known world, I'm really talking about uh, the Middle East and the Mediterranean. You know, they collapse. And no one knows exactly why. There's there's a few documents that are kind of cryptic from Egypt that cite the sea people coming in and raiding. And, you know, so it's kind of like... Damn Atlanteans again. I was going to say, it's, it's kind of like the world's first documented like uh, case of xenophobia. <laughs> it's like those damn people from other places. Oh, the first time that like racism was used. Yeah. Sea people. <laughs> documented down, put to paper. Um, the Carthaginians or something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, they think they they think it was like some offshoot of the Phoenicians because oh. those were like the big oh, because yeah, you farther back than the Carthaginians. Yeah. 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 Well, Car- Carthage is actually a Phoenician colony, so oh. it could have been Carthaginians or Libyans or something like that. It's always the Libyans, just like in Back to the Future. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they also they they know from like uh, 
archaeological evidence that there was a, just a massive volcanic eruption around the same time that a lot of these horrible things were happening, which could have also precipitated a massive tsunami. And they also think that there was droughts and stuff going on. So it's kind of like it wasn't any one thing. Yeah, it was just like the perfect storm of terrible things happening. When the sea people come, they're not bringing their best. They're bringing tsunamis. <laughs> That's right. But there was also... Um, I think there's a plague. There's there's several uh, epidemic going around that might have devastated uh, Crete, and they think now that what it actually was was what we now call German measles, which you may recognize as that disease that up until very recently had been eradicated, and then we brought it back for some reason. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Who needs uh, vaccines? But the <clears throat> the really cool thing about that. Um, and he's, he talks, I might be muddling these two topics at the same time, but there was also during the same time, the big bad superpower, like I said, what would have been the United States at the time was a Syria. And in about 10 years, Syria completely collapsed. And he's talking about this account written by a Greek guy 200 years later, where they're camping out um, in the ruins of this city. And he's marveling at this city, it, the walls and the structures there are bigger and thicker than anything he's ever seen. No, nothing even comes close in modern times. And he asked the people who built the city, and they don't even know. It makes me think of that um, Ozymandias poem, the Look on My Works in Despair, but mm -hmm. it's like a statue in front of desert and ruins and nothing. It's like... It's, it's kind of like that, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the opposite of that, because it was still very much there. Like, you, uh -huh. But, but the, the knowledge of who did it, was was no longer there. No one knew because this all kind of happened in. I don't use the term dark ages because that's used for, to describe other things. But sort of like in this blurry period before Herodotus, who's you know was the father of history. Before anyone started writing down histories, these things happened. And so the only way we really know about us from archaeological evidence and a few you know murals and and, and uh, statues and things like that, a little bit of documentation of what happened, we find in the ruins. But at the time. People, this is like, this is where a lot of these like myths of like the golden age and the heroics, the heroes and stuff like that came from, because it literally was that there was really there's point in time that no one could remember where things were objectively better. Like they could look at the ruins and say, surely the gods built this because we can't do anything uh, like that yeah. now. This is what they, this is why I don't want to use the term dark age because this period I'm describing is uh, largely because of what they call the first dark age. It's like a two, 300 year period after the bronze age collapse where civilization objectively took a step backwards. Things were not as good as they were. They had the infrastructure then. or anything. It sounds right. like a lot of the knowledge is lost because it wasn't written down to pass on. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. And just there was so much political instability because the Assyrians were kind of assholes. They were really brutal and did terrible things to people. Like if you rose up against them, they would just sort of think like they're going to like rape your women, kill your men, salt the land and make sure, you know, the example, make an example of you. But because they offer such political stability that you were able to have a lot of technological progress and civilization really flourished until this cavalcade of circumstances led to the Bronze Age, the Bronze Age collapse. And um, from that, I think the Persians would eventually rise out of that. And then you get that whole thing with the Peloponnesian Wars with the Persians and the Greeks and stuff like that. And that's really where we start getting the first inklings of history with people like Herodotus who wrote about these things happening 200 years before. So this whole Bronze Age stuff really happens like a couple hundred years before anyone starts writing down history. Could you imagine being an archaeologist and looking through ruins and having nothing to go on but what you see? Like no writings, no anything. Mm -hmm. And like just seeing that, like how, like you said, like it's like, goodness, the gods must have made this. Yeah. <clears throat> like if if someone was walking through our cities and they had no no books, no writings or anything like that, that would happen. Like, it'd just be... Do you remember, Craig, way back, like probably a year ago now in the old podcast when I was telling you about the book Sapiens mm -hmm. and how I was telling you through most of human history, there was this sort of mental outlook that we had as a culture that things were better in the past. Mm -hmm. Most of history, that's how people viewed it. The idea that the future is brighter is actually a really recent invention or advent in human civilization. It's post Star Trek. Well, <laughs> it, well, and this, and now you can kind of, this kind of adds context for why that was because you had the evidence that things were actually were better. 
you could mm-hmm. see these ruins that were objectively better than like, what you where have did now. we screw up along the way and, you know and this would happen again in the fall of rome you know what a few hundred a couple of concrete were well like a couple hundred years after rome fell you know there were still aqueducts and public baths and stuff but they'd fallen into disrepair because no one knew how to fix them it's kind of like how um damascus steel they yeah. forgot how to make that like we still are not quite certain how they made damascus steel but it's like the greatest metal at the time yeah and now they've just completely forgotten how they made it in the first place the difference is there's a lot of other things that we do a lot better than they did yeah <laughs> so it doesn't sting as much but can you imagine looking back you give physical evidence just knowing that well things were even, better for my grandparents i'm not even sure that concrete that we make now is quite the same as it was no i don't know um Cer- certainly no puff crete <laughs> oh, that's uh, Undying Mercenaries. Undying Mercenaries reference. God, Boom, baby. Boom. I hate both of you. We we can we can live with that. Um, and so after this chapter, he kind of takes a break from an historical event. Uh, Dan Carlin does, and he starts talking about this really interesting idea that I had never considered before. And so he said he's like, think about how your grandparents were raised or even maybe even how your parents are raised, depending on how old you were. It's like, do you think they, they were ever beaten or spanked or abused in any way? And it's like by modern standards, you'd almost certainly say yes, that your grandparents probably say it, suffered something that we would call abuse today. Now consider that as you go further back in the past, the abuse would actually become more extreme in the way people discipline their children. It's like, now consider that that was the norm for everybody on Earth. Like, he was a good parent for the time, but now looking back, he was an objectively bad parent. Right. <laughs> by, by, as by modern standards. But so he's like, now consider the fact that for the majority of human history, the entire rural world has been ruled by people who we would now call abuse victims. Right. He's like, and now look, look at how historical events have played out through that lens. And like he talks about Winston Churchill, like all the decisions he had to make through the war and stuff like that. And then he talks about how Winston Churchill was brought up. And he's like, if you were brought up under those circumstances, do you think that you would be able to like look at this with a rational eye and make all the right decisions and stuff like that? But he, he never he never renders like any uh, objective judgment on this. Like this is most certainly this made people terrible or whatever. What he's saying is like because he probably would have looked kindly on Winston Churchill. <laughs> well, yeah, well, Winston Churchill is a pole. You know, it's a lot. He's a very colorful figure. Let's leave it at that. But no, the, the point he's making is like I don't know if they necessarily would have been as effective as a modern affected as a modern day abuse victim would be because he's like this speaks to this sort of ethereal quality of toughness. And he go again. He jumps back to World War II, and he's like, you know, we call that generation the greatest generation, but why are they greater? Well, it's because they grew up during the Depression and had to fight through the the greatest war there ever was in, in world history. So, you know, we can probably say they're probably your average person of that generation is tougher than your average person of this generation. He's like, but what exactly makes toughness? Is it just the ability to weather through hardship? Is it being to, stuck in survival mode all yeah, the time to ignore pain? And is that necessarily a good thing? Is it good to be tough? We often like remain- also they were raised by people who went through a probably almost even as bad, if not worse. Yeah, war. people of World War One. I. <laughs> I mean, objectively, we know now that no, like people that have more self awareness are better leaders. People that have more compassion and empathy right. are better friends. They're healthier mental health wise. They're healthier physical health wise, and everything. Nonetheless, like we yeah. right, we romanticize like, toughness. We do. And yeah. there's sort of like this. There until very recently, there was a, he talks about historians. They've had this view of history that you could measure the progress of any civilization. There would be this ascending up the stairs in wooden shoes. He says, and then coming down in silk slippers. There'd be a certain point where they're fighting and then they're conquering and then they finally get enough and then the decadence and the extravagance and the softening begins. And so we glorify the conquest and the ascension and then we, you know, and then we use... We get appalled that we're like, sitting on the throne and getting fat and weak. Yeah, use it as a cautionary tale. Like, don't yeah. let this happen. And they talk about they talk about Persia much the same well, way. Well, then they get mad whenever you got like warmongers. Yeah. So it's like there's no win situation. It goes both ways, but so he takes this, this break to talk about uh, that just that weird concept of toughness, and you know, isn't it weird to think that through most of history, most people were psychologically unhinged by today's standards, and how would our history end up different if they all had the I same mean, sensibilities about, like, we do? Think about like I don't know if you guys have ever been through. I'm sure you guys have different places where they talk about torture back then, mm-hmm. like pulling people apart with horses. 
or like the Iron Maidens, which actually weren't used as much as they say, or like Gil- I don't think it even was a real thing. I think that's a myth. Um, but like a lot of the different torture, like pikes, mm-hmm. like the different torture instruments that were used are just you're like, oh my goodness, like that was a common thing. Uh, in I like some this one they the could world. use. It was sort of like a ball. Uh, that big, like the size of a golf ball, but it had a screw attached to it, and as you screwed it, it would expand. Mm-hmm. See, the idea is you put it in an orifice, yeah. pick an orifice, your choice, and then you start screwing it pick. and expanding it and ripping the person apart. And you know, you could tighten it incrementally a little bit at a time, and you could put it in someone's mouth, break their jaw, you could put it elsewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of, the, of why that kind of happened with such like brutal takedowns of every other culture is like. Up until like modern times, if you met a different country or culture, you legitimately had no idea how to interact with mm-hmm. that culture. You didn't know how to speak their language. You didn't know what the things they did. Right. And but now, you know, I mean, we kind of know I mean, each just, other. just look at the language, right? So we use the term barbarian. It was invented by the Greeks, and it literally meant anyone who wasn't Greek. Yeah. <laughs> they they first described the Persians as being barbarians, and the, the idea was that they, they were mocking the language of the Persians because it sounded like they were just saying bar over and over again to them, bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians. And then when the Romans started using the term, it was anyone who wasn't Roman, and they used it to, to talk about the Celts and you know the Germans. And you know, anybody who wasn't Roman was automatically a barbarian. Um so yeah, historically, like the 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 path has always been: if they aren't like us, they clearly must be savages, because we have no way to actually interact with them because yeah. we can't talk to them in any way. Well, and in uh, ethnocentrism has always been the standard; it's not been the outlier. It's always been the rule. You, you just assume that whatever you're doing is best. I think too, uh, like whenever you run into another culture, it's really easy at this point in time it's societal so you are actually coming into our territory Mm -hmm. or we are going into that territory and we're going to take it um as part of our own right because they can only have as much territory as the small amount of people that they have during that time relative to what we have now so it's almost like in those conflict has to breed not only because of the language barriers and the cultural barriers, but also because they don't realize that there's an entire freaking planet that they can colonize, right? It feels like this is this is literally the world. Rome is the world. Well, and, yeah. and so many uh, emperors and kings have claimed to be the king of the world, not knowing that they really just control the small sliver of what they, you know, because to them, the world was the Mediterranean and the mm-hmm. Near East and, you know, maybe some parts of Europe. And he's talking about, you know, you look on those old maps and it's like you get to where the end of what they knew was there. And then they're back. And here's a dragon because <laughs> there's no point in going there. That's the end. Well, of the world. my ship sank. That means it was dragons. Yeah, That's yeah. the only explanation. Well, here, like, be, here, here be sea monsters. Well, it's like whenever you think about it and you're like, Europe is so small whenever you put like a map of America over mm-hmm. like different European countries. And you're like, holy crap. And this land was sitting there all while this stuff was going on. Well, you don't have to go that far. Look at sub-Saharan Africa. Like, for most of human history, all we really knew about was North Africa. Mm-hmm. And maybe and some right. of Yeah, West that, that goes on forever. Don't even bother. Yeah. And anything <laughs> below the Sahara might as well have been an ocean. Like, you just you couldn't get to it. Even if you got across the Sahara, now you were in a jungle full of malaria. It wasn't until you got to the very <laughs> southern malaria. Yeah. It wasn't until, like dengue fever and yellow fever and all that stuff that would kill the white man. <laughs> and it wasn't until you got far below that down to what we modern South Africa that the climate starts becoming temperate again because you're on the other side of the tropics. It's neither here nor there. Um, so after he takes this little break where he's talking about toughness and the idea of most of human history run by child abuse victims you know we should actually uh, take a break here to say something uh, we should have said 23 minutes ago like craig does not condone child abuse no uh this you do condone child abuse no i don't this is a uh spoiler for the book but not a substitute for the book is um, so like we're talking spoiler. about principles of the book that are in the book, no. but we're only talking about small portions of the book. That actually segues quite nicely into my biggest criticism of the book. Okay. If you it's listen a giant to, spoiler. If you listen to the podcast, 
you will have already heard about 70% of this book. Because most of this book is just rehashing, and in fact, smaller bits of it, because it's not as expansive as the podcast, of what you've already heard on select episodes of the podcast. Specifically, if you listen to Celtic Holocaust, if you listen to King of Kings, and if you listen to Destroyer of Worlds, you so probably... So like the most recent ones, actually. Well, he's only got like seven, but there's some of them are multi-part episodes, and they're all like five hours long, so I'm not trying to say he doesn't have a lot, but yeah most of um well and there might be even more to that because i haven't listened to them all but like the most recent one supernova in the east isn't covered that much because i think he wrote the book before he got to that episode Mm -hmm. but yeah especially so celtic holocaust destroyer of worlds and king of kings um a lot of that's gonna be retread in the book which isn't to say the book isn't worthwhile but there's gonna be some parts where you're like wow i'm pretty sure i've heard this before and was this book written like he talks Yes. Do you think that he just got like that freaking dragon software or whatever and just spoke the book into existence? Yeah, very possibly. I mean, it, it really does. If you, if you like the podcast, you'll like the book. It's like an eight-hour podcast. He's a very, very good speaker. Yeah. Very well, well spoken. I, I, I had um, mixed feelings about when I first started listening to the pod, but um, his voice has grown on me. Yeah. Talk. I better grab a beer. <laughs> so like I, i'm listening to this i'm listening to you tell the rendition and you talk to us about some of the things that uh you don't like about it which is if you listen to the podcast only about 30 percent of it's new what are some of the things that you really do like about this book what i do really like about it is it gives you a great sense of perspective on ways to look at things um It'll give you an an immense gratitude to be alive right now when you are alive, and but also give you a lot of um, again perspective on just how fragile that is. He does do a very good job. I know he does this in the podcast, so I wonder if he does this in the book, where he takes you from where you're at, and like you said, changing your perspective, being like, "Hey, this is the paradigm you're used to. Mm-hmm. Imagine it this way, yeah, completely differently." Wait. And you're just like. Why have I never thought of it this way? Here, here's a good example of that. And this comes later in the book when he's talking about sort of the nuclear near misses or whatever. And he starts off talking about Hiroshima, you know, the, the nuking of Japan at the end of World War II. And he's talking about how, like, it's pretty easy to justify that today by saying, like, well, if we would have had to invade Japan, it would have cost so many more soldiers and what like that. And, you know, we saved lives in this war by shortening it using the nuclear bomb, even if we had to bomb civilians. And he's like, and you also have to consider what Truman, what he was taking into account were political concerns. If the American public had found out after the war that he had a weapon that could have ended it way sooner with many fewer American casualties and he didn't use it, he would have been politically lynched. Like, there's no way he ever would have gotten reelected. So that was a factor. But he says... But here's the thing about that argument that, you know, see, you know, killing this many lives now saves lives later. He goes, how many people are you willing to kill in the past to save a life now? What I also find interesting is you could also make the argument if he really wanted to end the war with a nuke, uh, he didn't attack the actual power structure. He attacked civilians with the nuke. He, he He didn't nuke the emperor of Japan. Well, okay, so the reason... It's because Tokyo was already destroyed at that point. They'd firebomb the ever-living shit out of it. Right. And actually, Dan Carly goes goes in quiet links to say, like, really, the nuclear bomb... Like, it was unique in the sense it was a nuclear bomb. But also, it wasn't that unique in its result. That we had already been doing that with just immense amounts of conventional ordnance. Just in in using I think one of the main differences was that, oh, we're going to do one of these every week. Well, and he talks and about like, it. oh, you guys have that capability, which we didn't. Yeah. But that's kind of hard whenever someone's like less Russian roulette with your country and all the people in it. And by the way, all targets are game. Well, he talks about up until this point, because bombing, bombing raids have become routine by the end of the war, whether you're in Germany, mm-hmm. whether you're in England or whether you're in Japan like this, you would experience it probably. Yeah. So up until this point, the air raid sirens would go off. You'd go down to a bomb shelter. You'd sit there overnight or whatever. You'd hear the bombs drop. And, you know, a period of time would pass. You would go up and you would see the damage. And it, you know, it makes sense. That was a lot of bombs that just dropped. Mm-hmm. Now, not, not this time. Yeah, now it's in an instant. All you see is a blinding light. And I literally mean blinding. If you looked at it, if you just have it looking directly in that direction, you're, you're, blind. Not, you're yeah. blind now. It'd just fry your eyes. 
and probably you're dead anyway if you're close enough for that to happen. So in an ap- absolute instant, just miles and miles of what was a city is just flattened. It's gone, you know, and they talk about how people were so incredibly confused. They had no idea. They call them the walking dead. Some people were like burnt, burnt to the point where they were going to die. And they, it's like they're every structure in the human mind and body set up to react to physical, uh, you know, physical pain and, and attack doesn't know how to make sense of what just happened. Like you're, cause there's nothing in nature that could ever create this sort of effect mm-hmm. where you're just fried. You're already dead. So these people just wandering around, you know, skin falling off their limbs and stuff like that before they collapse into a heap. And they're, you know, they're, they may be begging somebody for help. And the other person's like, I, I don't even know how to begin helping you, <laughs> you know? And I'm in danger right now of radiation falling. Oh, and they didn't know that at the time, though, either. Because, yeah. again, they didn't know what happened. Yeah. Your average layperson doesn't know what a nuclear... Hell, the, the the physicists who invented it didn't quite know exactly how it would play out. Some people were very concerned that they would create a runaway chain reaction and it would destroy the entire planet. It would ignite all the oxygen yeah, in the atmosphere. in the atmosphere and kill everybody, just everyone. <laughs> you know? uh, but anyway... Getting getting back to the point, though, when he says when you're using this logic to justify dropping the atomic bomb or to justify just the mass bombing of anyone, because um, there was this there was this idea, I think it might have been like Curtis LeMay or someone said he was an Air Force general, said something to the effect of like the most cruel and intolerable part of war is its length, you know, and so anything you can do to shorten the war is by its very nature humanitarian. So that's the logic, right? Shorten the war, fewer people die. So he says, like, how many people will you justify killing in the past to save someone today? And he goes, now, before you answer that, how many people are you okay with future people killing from your generation to save people from their generation? Does that change your perspective on whether or not it's okay or if it's justifiable? And that's one. That's an example of something like I never thought about that way. The, it's kind we of killed s- generations of... Well, you don't think about you. Don't, you never think about yourself as a part of the past, right? Because you're definitively not. You're part of the present. You always think about yourself as part of the present and the future. But at some point, you will be part of the past. Yeah. And so, you know, does it make much difference to you that your city got nuked um, today? If you knew a hundred years from now, there might be a couple extra hundred thousand people alive because of it. You know. What makes it tough nowadays because it seems to have moved beyond that into kind of a state of perpetual warfare. Yeah. Because of because advanced record keeping, just, you know. Well, it's because of the. Keeps bringing back things from the past that it's just a constant cycle of you did this, well, you did this, you did yeah. this, you did this, you did this, you did this, just over and over again. It's just kind of perpetual now. Well, the really interesting thing about the nuclear age is that. Hiroshima was nothing like the first atomic bombs were nothing compared to what we would create. And these same people, a lot of the physicists who are part of the Manhattan project who created the first atomic bomb were pacifists. They, and they were very concerned. Like, what are we doing? Creating this weapon is humanity even like equipped to handle this, you know, like we're, we're hairless apes who evolved using sticks and stones as tools and fighting each other with that. And the, the analogy is we're giving a gun to a toddler and telling him to behave. Like, can we even trust that? Well, and that's what the world became later on, right? Everybody got the nuke and pointed at each other and like, don't fire yours though. Oh, the runaway logic of fire it. fire mine. The, the runaway logic was, okay, so now we're being asked to create what they call the super, the super bomb which is what we now call hydrogen bomb or thermonuclear bomb, 100 times more powerful than an atomic bomb. We don't need those. Like, we already have atomic bombs plenty good to level a city. But maybe if we create a weapon that's terrible enough, it will make war... It's like the Death Star logic. It'll make the proposition of war unbearable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Dr. Manhattan. The idea is if we make a weapon that's so terrible and people realize how terrible it was, they'll never want to have war again. So I think that uh, what what I'm hearing you say is that this book, uh, Dan Carlin does a masterful job at getting you to look at things from a different perspective. And by that, enriches your experience in thinking about the past. You certainly get the sense that he's put a lot of thought but into these subjects. But also like philosophically. Yeah. Like, it sounds like you kind of, I don't know, you can tell me, did you feel that you were fulfilled after reading this book? 
Um, for the couple of insights, the one like the one I just gave you, the idea of you know what is a life, past, present, and future, and how much is that worth? What is the value, true value of life? Those sort of insights they give you something to think about. For those alone, even though, like I said, seventy percent of the book I'd heard before, I would say it's worth the read. It's definitely mm-hmm. a mind expanding book um, for most people, unless you're just you know. Unless you're like a total Ignatius and you're already smarter than the rest of us <laughs> and know about all this already. Um, you're determined to make that a running theme now. No, I now, just... Now I, I'm going to... Honestly, I just thought it fit. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, it, he, he paints a very vivid picture. Um, jumping back, he, he does this whole section where he's talking about the Black Death. And we've all heard about the bubonic plague and the Black Death, and a third of Europe died or whatever, you know. Yeah, it was terrible. You know what I mean? Like, but you kind of you knew said, it. You said that so dismissively. Like, oh, well, a third of Europe died. Oh, well, whoopsie-daisy. Well, I don't think I'm alone in that sentiment when you're talking about when you're learning about it in history you class. You're reading about it in a book. Amount. It's not real. It might as well be, it might as well be Star Wars. Like, you can empathize it on a theoretical level, but you can't imagine this being real. And the way he's putting it, it's like, he's like, imagine just everybody in your town dying. Yeah. And now imagine further, not that just everyone's dying, but no one knows why. No one can give you an answer. The best anyone can come up with is... It's truly, probably witches. Yeah, it, Jews poisoning the well. Yeah, Jews are witches. Or God <laughs> is angry with us. Those are like the, the leading explanations for why everybody is dying. Because <laughs> germ theory is still hundreds of years away. Antibiotics, hundred years after that. Like, there's, there's, you just don't have a freaking chance. And what we lack in the modern world is that we have no experience with that level of hopelessness. The, most of us... Which, by the way, creates a very specific and very different type of trauma that most of us aren't used to. Yeah. I mean, it goes well, back to like the whole thing of toughness. It's, like, I would say it's not something that doesn't exist in this age. It's just the people who have experienced that kind of hopelessness I was gonna aren't the ones statement. in power who can actually ascribe to this. Well, and, 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 well, they wouldn't be the ones that would make it there. And it's a small minority. Right. They wouldn't be the cause of it. They'd be the victims of it. They I mean, I, I, I don't mean no to make can light learn from them. of people who are like living through civil wars and stuff like right. that. Now, I realize that's a terrible Well, that would be like, yeah, a lot of people that are going through civil wars are a good example of that. But is, if I could speak uh, specifically to us three white cis hetero males in yeah. the United States. <laughs> well, like a lot of times people that go through the military, they experience uh, shell shock or different things. Uh, like if you get mortar attacked as a military personnel, it's kind of that same thing, the hopelessness that you're like, Hopefully this doesn't hit me. Yeah. Hopefully this doesn't kill me. And you actually eventually suffer from a very specific type of trauma where it's like any type, you know, I could die at any moment. And And that's just how you end up operating all the time. And I I don't want to make light of that experience at all. I'm not trying to do that. Um, But now let me do that because (sighs) at least in that situation, you're like, if you, if you're in Iraq or wherever, you're saying, you know, it's a mortar. Any day you could get blown up by an idea or like, at least you know your family's okay. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, your nobody, family might already be dead. Yeah, nobody that you You know. might be the last one. And no one will come get their bodies because they're terrified to touch anyone who died of the plague. And, you know, and now you're starting to show symptoms. And it's, and, the, you know, and people, people are thinking like, oh, this, you know, this is God. But then the clergy are coming down with the same thing. And it's like, well, they must have been corrupt or yeah. something, you know. <laughs> You know, they were bad clergymen. Like, what have we done, God? Well, how can we appease you in a way that'll make this go away? You told me that if I prayed hard enough, it would yeah. go away. But now you're dying. And I, and I, at least, I'm not trying to make light of religion or faith or anything like that. It, it, but it's just this this idea. It's something that happened. It's probably something that somebody did say to someone at some point. Yeah, it's just the sense it's of... like, you're supposed to be the guy who can cure that, all this stuff. Said but that in the Bible. I'm Jacob. fine, and you're the one who's the yeah. priest, and you're in dying. Book of Jacob, that's what his friends told him. You must have done something wrong for God to be so upset at you. Yeah. It, well, yeah, and that's just kind of the mentality. But then it's everybody, right? So it's like... Yeah. All right, no, this yeah, is clear. you're not even talking to your friend. Your friend's dead. Yeah. And you don't people, know what killed him either. There are people who just said, no, oh, this is clear. This is the end of the world. Like, there's, there's no other explanation. Like, mm-hmm. any day now, Jesus is going to come back on the cloud of glory and smite all the non-believers or whatever. But, it, yeah, like, just that uh, that level of unabatable hopelessness is not something that 
we can relate to readily in the modern world. Certainly not in the first world. Certainly not people who've never experienced war trauma or things like that. Mm -hmm. And Dan Carlin does a wonderful job of getting you as close as you can to walking in those shoes and kind of, if you've got a developed sense of empathy, which I, you know, I'm not to brag, but I think I do. Uh, it's, it's harrowing hearing like the way he describes it. It's in the feels. If you can put yourself in that situation, just does he interview anyone throughout this book series? Well, no, because there's no one that survived the Black Death who's still. Well, I mean, like today. in modern times, like <laughs> no, it, it's it's pretty much just him. It's it's almost like imagine if you got me or Craig on one of our drunken rants. Yeah. Only it's much more articulate and well thought it's out. Like now. And he's not drunk. <laughs> yeah, he's not drunk. But it, it's, it's like he's done like months of research to talk about like 20 minutes of things it's that level of, <laughs> of waxing philosophical though like yeah. there's a lot of like like he does it in sort of a conversational way like i'm sure this is all scripted but he'll be sitting there making a point they'll something like but i wonder if you know this other thing i'm trying to do his voice you know <laughs> you know but i wonder if you thought about this this way and what would that do to you can <laughs> you, you know, just like, imagine going back to this time yeah. and this happening to you now take that viewpoint and all of a sudden skew it because now all of a sudden you have this and this and this going on. Like, goodness, that's like there's just so much going on. The, the biggest point that I, that I take away from this is how incredibly unique our position is at this place in time. That through the vast majority of human history, the norm was that your life was chaotic, unpredictable, could end in any moment for any reason that you would not understand. Yeah. Could be a plague, could be a war. You know, you, mostly you had no, you had no rights, and you had no real sense of autonomy unless you were one of the select people born into nobility. And even then, you might not. He gives this account of like an Assyrian king, like having, you know, he conquers this land and then has all of the noble sons executed in front of them and has their daughters raped in front of them. So it's like even being rich and powerful is not a guarantee that some shit beyond your control won't happen to you. And I grant that that's still in some instances happens today. Like I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, proverbial speaking in Deerbergs and some psycho busted with a gun and start shooting the joint up. But the odds are so relative or so infinitesimally small relative to how they were in ancient times that I don't think about it. I don't, it doesn't even factor. If you lived way back then, you're probably going to have an unpleasant death. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and you know what? You have to chances are, you this would, is not going to end well. If you lived in ancient times or even any time before the modern period, you probably had to factor in what are my odds of being attacked by wolves into your daily like choices you're making. You know? Will I get me, ripped apart by an animal? Is there a part of this book where you wish he would have spent more time on? Um, yeah, but it's not for any particular reason other than personal interests. I would love to hear, I'm very interested in like the whole thing with the Bronze Age in general, because on the one hand, it was this period of unspeakable technological advancement um, with the discovery of bronze. And it was like really the first time that we had a international community where people from far, far afield were communicating with one each other, you know literate noble people. Actually, actually half the time the, the nobles weren't literate, but they had scribes to read and write for them. Um, and yet we know so little about it because there's so few surviving documents that aren't just like, we had 10 wheat today. You know, <laughs> I bought five slaves today or whatever. So much of it is just bureaucratic record keeping. <laughs> yeah. Or, Age Old of Empires. stone needed. Yeah. <laughs> when you play Age of Empires, it makes you feel like we know a lot about it. We really don't. <laughs> okay. It it I would love to I would love to hear more about that. But I really I enjoy I think where he gets really into his groove and he's waxing the most philosophical, making the best points is when he's talking about more contemporary times, when he's talking about the modern era, especially in regards to our weapons of mass destruction and how we are capable of killing everybody on this planet, but our brains did not in any way, shape, or form evolve to handle that kind of power. But here it is, we have it. What do we do with it? And he's talking about how, like, uh, the the prevailing theory among the intellectuals is that we need to evolve as a species very rapidly. To, like, our technology has gotten way further. It's gotten beyond us. And we need to catch up 
emo- like you know as a society and as a culture to handle the sort of power we now wield that's where at i can destroy your country but we're still operating as i throw rock at your face yeah it, it's it's very much like it's very tit for tat it's eye for eye that sort of thing like that that's human nature and that doesn't work in a world where i have population ending power you know they're talking about like you know with the mention the nuclear bomb we also had to come up with this infrastructure who who wields the nuclear bomb who makes that choice and it was decided one guy the president who at the time was a high school educated failed haberdasher from independence missouri woot woot missouri <laughs> Who didn't know if it would set all of the air on fire. Yeah. Well, I didn't even understand this concept. And he didn't even know that this bomb existed until like three weeks before the fact. Because the guy who was supposed to handle this whole thing died suddenly in office because he ran for one too many terms. And this guy was never supposed to be president. Truman was never supposed to be president. Are you kidding me? Like, this guy was a nobody. He's a political nobody. They basically threw him the bone of vice president as a, as a, as a consolation prize for being a, a good party. You that know, is basically what it is. Party patron. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're giving him the power to wipe out entire cities. And, it, and you know what? Given all that, I think that really casts a whole different light on the presidency of Harry Truman. I think he performed amazingly well, <laughs> given like the, the prep he had which was none and given his background had, yeah he's not, there is really no there really is no experience that you can have that will give you a taste of what it would like to be the president of the united states well and president of the united states and now handed something like a nuclear bomb because yeah. there's no weapon it's orders of magnitude beyond anything yeah. else we've ever well, had think about point. this every job or position that you have you have break whether or not you work months at a time, then you get time off. Mm-hmm. That's not the case for the president. Well, yeah, well, there, there's times where they take vacations, but they're not off. I said we we tend we tend to talk a lot about how much golf the president's playing. Yeah, but, <laughs> Does that matter who's in office? Yeah, we're pissed but off about how they're, much golf they're not off. Playing. They're constantly being reported, but you know, updated on things. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why they age so much. I mean, it's a lot. You're right. It's more than the human brain and it body was meant to. Even as a not a huge fan of the man, but when 9-11 happened, George W. Bush was reading a children's book to a classroom, yeah. and he just had to just not freak out that yeah. <laughs> war might have been declared. What yeah, it's like, yeah. what you, I, not, not the smartest present we've had, not the best present we've had by far, but still, he kept his cool under pressure. Yeah, can you imagine? It's <laughs> like, someone just whispered that, and he was like, what do you mean they fell down? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to any people who are... If, dramatically affected by that's not 9-11 is not funny but the absurdity of that situation yeah you gotta laugh a little bit at it so uh, let's do brass tacks here out of 10 now i know this is a little bit different than other books we talked about yeah uh, or other books that we will talk about so what would you say out of 10 let's say that 10 maybe not the best book that you've read but 10 like maybe uh it's a book that people should read um and where zero is like you pass it by well, I, it depends on whether or not you listen to the podcast. If you listen to the podcast, then I can't necessarily give it as high a review just because there's going to be so much ground that's going to be retread to the point where some of the things you hear in the book sound like they could have been like, like they're the exact same wording you hear in the podcast. So they must feel like it could have been ripped. Um, the production quality is as such that I don't think that's what happened, but he literally uses the for word for word of the exact same lines I've heard in the podcast. Now, if you haven't listened to the podcast, um, then what I would ask you is what do you want in a book? Uh, if you're the sort of person who I don't think you necessarily have to be very well educated or even be the sort of person who considers yourself intelligent. If you just are interested in, the human experience throughout different points in time and place, then I think this is a great book. Um, You know, it it is a history book, um, but it's history done right in the sense that you're not, you don't feel like you're being blindsided by dates and facts. It's very much human narrative. You're hearing like Dan Carlin, it's, it's got a gift for just painting a picture on what life was like for somebody who lived 3000 years ago or whatever the 
you know, whatever time period we're talking about, you know, and you, if you're a person, if you're not a sociopath, you have any shred of empathy, it can be very moving to put yourself in the place of those people. So if you were that, if that sounds like you, I would rate this very highly. It's hard for me to give it a 10 out of 10 because I'm not that person. I listen to the podcast. So I'm not exactly looking at it with fresh objective eyes, but I definitely rate it very highly, probably like an eight or a nine. If like me, you'd already heard it before, then it's probably like a seven or an eight. It's still very good. It's still worth the reading. But uh, would you miss that much if you didn't and you just stuck to the podcast? No, you'd probably survive. Probably wouldn't be a big deal. Yeah. If you're someone like me that probably is like, oh, I like history, but like not a lot, not enough to spend a ton of time with it. But it sounds like it's a mix of history and philosophy. Yeah. So, which is a nice blend. And I don't know if those are always coalesce in these types of books. If you went to college and say you had a history professor that you really liked, and probably the reason you really liked that person, unless you were just you're a history guy like me and you just like history regardless. But if you're someone who didn't like history, but you had a history professor say you really liked because of the way they taught the class, I think that same quality is what you will find in this book and the way it's presented by Carlin. Perfect. And you listen to the book. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. Did I not mention that? I don't yeah. I don't know how to read. We kind of talk. Um, <laughs> he I, know words good. Yeah, I know words good. I don't have a lot of time to sit and read, but I spend an inordinate amount of time in my car. So, yeah, most of the books I will be reviewing are going to be done audio format. And there is something to say about that, too, because you get it narrated by Dan Carlin himself, who, as you said, has a very um, uh, engaging and uh, what's the word? He's compelling not a voice. Yeah, he's voice. not a voice actor, but he's very, uh, very much be. into his own work. Yeah, yeah. He you sound, can feel the passion when he's talking. It, when I first started hearing it, I kind of sounded cheesy to me because I'm like, "This is kind of like for real, or is he just putting on this voice?" No, I think he's really genuinely <laughs> talking like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely recommend it, regardless of where you are on that spectrum. If you're someone who has any interest at all in what Dan Carlin calls the extremes of the human experience, or you like history definitely check it out um whether or not you pay for it or rent it from your library or whatever that's up to you but I, I think it's worth a read perfect and what was the title of it again that was uh the end is always near uh what was it called uh, from nuclear near misses to the or from the bronze age collapse to nuclear near misses eh, if you just look up the end is always near you'll find it if i'm not getting the subtitle correctly <laughs> perfect All right. Thank you guys for listening, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time when we review another book. Until then, have a good one. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. We hope that you found it enjoyable. If you have any books of your own that you feel like would be great for us to read and to review on the podcast, or if you have any comments about any of the books that we've reviewed, please email us at booksandbeerreview at gmail.com. Or you can visit our website to listen to more episodes of different books that we've reviewed at booksandbeerreview.podbean.com. Until next time, happy reading.